0: Are you tired of Christmas music yet? In our home, Christmas music has been going on since before Thanksgiving. And the other day, I had a conversation with my wife, Joyce, about one of those Christmas songs, Oh Holy Night. There was a phrase in there, a lyric in there that says, A thrill of hope, the world, the weary world rejoices. And she said, You know, people today are weary and they need hope. And from that conversation, I began looking at this song a little closer and discovered that the that the gospel is encapsulated in four different phrases in this song. And I want to take a look at those four different phrases this morning. But before I do, I want to tell you the story of the author and how this song came to be. The author lived in a small town in France in the 1800s. His family was in the winemaking business, and um, he was trained to be able to make wine and also make wine barrels. But a tragic accident happened when he was about eight years old. He was out with a friend and he got shot in the hand with a gun and his hand was amputated. And as a result, his wine barrel making days were over. Later he became, or later he went to college and graduated with a degree in literature. He practiced law for a while, but also developed a desire to write poetry Eventually, he moved back to to his hometown in France and returned to the family business. The local priest one day came up and asked him if he would consider writing a poem for the Christmas Eve service. Now, he had not been attending church very regularly and all but had abandoned his faith, but he agreed to write this poem. And that poem was read that Christmas Eve in their small little church. A few years later, he had a friend that was a composer, and he asked this friend to write the music for his poem. And this Christmas song has been sung ever since as O Holy Night. It was written by Placide Capot. So where did this poet, who had all but abandoned his faith, get his inspiration for writing O Holy Night? Well, it wasn't from his childhood memories of growing up in the church and all the sermons that the priest had, had preached. And it wasn't from an emotional or in spiritual response to his relationship with God, because he didn't really have much of a relationship with God. He got his inspiration from the book of Luke. When he was asked to write this poem, he decided he would better reread the Christmas story in the book of Luke. So he read that account and then penned the words to this poem. Here's a side note. This is a reminder to us that we need to read and study scripture. Truth about God comes directly from God in his own words. Scripture, theology, doctrine, beliefs have got to be grounded in where is it written. Even though Placide uh, was not a faithful follower of Jesus, God's truth from his word shines through in his lyrics. So let's take a look at those four phrases. The first one that I want to look at today is, it's the night of our dear Savior's birth. Placid is setting the scene for this poem, introducing the gospel taken directly from Luke. And these are familiar words, especially at this time of year, but let, them, let me read them for you one more time. Luke chapter 2, verses 4 through 7 say this, So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house in the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married To him and and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. The culmination of hundreds of years of anticipation. The Messiah had finally arrived. This is the first advent, and advent means the arrival of an important person, the first arrival. Of Jesus, the Messiah on earth. God set this event in motion way back in the Garden of Eden. The prophets had been pre- uh, pre- uh, pre- predicting this event for generations. The Savior of the world that would change everything was finally here. The next line Long lay the world in sin and error pining. This line explains the need for our Savior. Jesus had come to rescue us from sin, the sin that we couldn't take care of on our own. Pining is a word that we don't use anymore today. The pining means craving, desiring, or obsession. So it could read this way. Long lay the world in sin and error craving, or sin and error desiring, or obsession with sin and error. Mankind, since the Garden of Eden, has been under bondage of sin an error, and we've liked it. We've craved it. We've desired it. We've obsessed over it. Let me give you a couple examples. Let me just give you a couple words. One is money. We think money will make us happy. So we crave it. We desire it. We obsess over it. But we know from our own experience, we know from God's word, that it will never meet the deepest longings of our hearts. It's an error. Let me give you another word. Sex, especially sex outside of marriage. We call that love. A lot of people in our culture today are making love. We call it normal. We call it no big deal. But God in his word says, it is sin. These are sin and error that we crave, we long, we obsess over, we desire. Let's look at how scripture describes our human condition. In Romans 3.23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone is born a sinner. We are not born inherently good or inherently neutral. We are born sinners. You might say, well, I think people are born good or at least neutral, and I think it's the choices they make that make them either good or bad. Romans 5.12 puts it this way. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in the same way, death came to all people because all have sinned. God created the world with no sin and no death. Sin entered the world because of the choice of one man, who we know as Adam. What was Adam's sin that caused this sin sin problem? It was a sin of disobedience. Romans 5.19 says, For just as through the disobedience of this one man, the many were made sinners. Let's take a closer look at Genesis, the account of Adam's disobedience. Genesis 2, 16 to 17 says, And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. In the next chapter, we see God coming to Adam and Eve after they've eat of, eaten of that fruit. Genesis three eleven to 13 says, And he said, Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, Hey, the woman put, you put here with me, she gave me some fruit, and I ate it. And the Lord said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, well, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The blame game started. God had specifically told Adam, before Eve was ever created, not to eat from that tree. He warned him of the consequences, the consequence of death. Adam's disobedience resulted in spiritual and physical death passed on to every generation since. Remember what Romans 5.19 said? For just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners. Ever since that first act of disobedience, mankind has been obsessed with sin and error. We don't want anybody telling us what to do, especially not God. I'm free to do whatever I want to do. I don't need anyone else telling me what to do. We want to live out my truth. I love that phrase. I, here's my truth. This is your truth. That's somebody else's truth. But we don't want to believe in absolute truth. We, have, we form our own ideas of truth and reject God's idea of truth. We've created God in our image to be what we want him to be. We are the rulers of our world, our little G God. We are the ruler of it, not God, Jehovah, the creator. But there's another part of the story that should act as a warning to us. Significant doctrinal error led to Adam's choice to disobey God. So what is doctrine? Doctrine are our core beliefs, our non-negotiable foundations for our faith, the framework of our faith. You know, the other day I was bored. I was watching football on Sunday afternoon and I was bored, so I got out a puzzle. I haven't put a puzzle together in a, in a bunch of years, but I got out this puzzle and I separated all the pieces. I put all the edge pieces in one area, put the different colors in other, pair, other areas, getting ready to put this puzzle together. And I started with the edge pieces, like many of us do, the framework of the puzzle, because that is what contains the rest of the puzzle. The framework defines the puzzle The rest of the puzzle is completed in relationship to that framework. And doctrine is the very same way. They are our core doctrinal frameworks that are non-negotiable to believers. So what are some of the doctrines of the faith? Here's just a couple I'll mention. The doctrine of the nature and the character of God. Scripture tells us who God is, what his nature is, what his character is. Core framework for our belief, non-negotiable. The Bible is God's word and without error. Core foundational framework of our belief. What sin is, what the path to salvation is, what the gospel is, core foundational framework for our belief. God's standards for holiness, what his holiness is and his standard for us for holiness. Core foundational beliefs that are core to what we believe. Adam and Eve had core knowledge of God as well. They knew that God was good And he was holy. They knew that God was a creator and sustainer of life. They experienced that personally. They knew that God required obedience. They knew that God wanted a relationship with him. They walked and talked with him in the garden. They knew that God's words were true. But let's look how Satan introduced doctrinal error to bring about Satan's act of, or Adam's act of disobedience. Genesis 3, 1 to 6 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat from any tree of the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the fruit from the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat, It, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Now, I've never had a direct conversation with Satan like Eve did in the garden, but I've had many uh, situations that were similar well, I've been tempted about something, and I have this inward conversation in my head. Let me give you an example. When I was 16 years old, I went to the fair with a bunch of my buddies, and when we got to the gate, there was a price. Those that were 13 and under got in for a certain price. Those that were over 13 paid a separate price. I handed the lady some money. She handed me change like I was a 13-year-old. Now, I look pretty young for my age, even though I was 16, but I told her, um, that I, that that was the wrong price at I was 16, but I had this conversation that was going on in my head. And you may have had these conversations too, where one part of me is saying, you know what? Nobody's going to care. This, this fair makes all kinds of money. I can have more money for cotton candy if I just accept what she's doing for me and who's going to know anyway. And then I have this other part of my head that's going, but God knows integrity matters. It, it matters what's going on. As a believer, you can't do that. So I chose the right thing. But the same kind of conversation that Adam and Eve had with Satan was going on in my head. Satan is crafty. And he gets Adam and Eve to listen through a seemingly innocent conversation. But they were being set up. There are three statements that led to compromising their core beliefs. First one, Satan said, did God really say that you can't eat from any?" Tree in the garden? I mean, come on. Look, there's pears and peaches and apples, all kinds of good things to eat. Why would God be so mean and cruel to keep you from enjoying all these fruit trees? The error? God isn't good. He's cruel. He doesn't want you to be happy. God doesn't want you to experience the good things in life. It's the same doctrinal error that's around today. God is not a good God. That's wrong. God is good. Another statement that was made, this was made by Eve. No, he said we could eat from any tree, just not the one in the middle of the garden. Oh, and and he said we couldn't touch it either or we'd die. The error, adding to scripture, putting words into God's mouth. The Pharisees did this, and Jesus nailed them often through the New Testament. But it happens today, too. Many of us have experienced this just in the last few months. We've experienced this through conversations with people. We've experienced this with social media. You can't be a real Christian unless you, and then fill in the blank, unless you vote for this particular person or this particular party, unless you believe this about gun control, unless you take this stand on racial reconciliation, unless you believe this about wearing a mask, We put words into God's mouth because God's word does not give us those special, specific things. The third thing, Satan said, you're not going to die if you eat that fruit. In other words, God is lying to you. God doesn't want you to be like him with more knowledge and more wisdom. What's the doctrinal error? God is a liar. God's word is not true. God's word is invalid, full of errors, open to interpretation. Don't listen to God. Believe in yourself. For generations, we've, claimed, we've craved these same errors and the same sin. Sin came into the world through disobedience and doctrinal errors. So, be in the word. Study and hold fast to the truths and the doctrines of scripture. Know the framework of our faith and don't let error creep in. I've often told students... When you go to heaven and you stand before God and he says, why did you believe that particular thing? I don't want them to say because Brian said that or that Pastor Trinity said that or I read this in a great Christian book or I saw this on the internet. I want them to say because this is what your word said. Be in the word. The next phrase, till he appears and the soul felt its worth. So here we have the gospel. The Savior has come. We have a sin problem that separates us from God, and we can't take care of it on our own. But we are loved by God. If you felt depressed, anxious, unworthy in these past few months, maybe it's because of the pandemics, maybe it's because of loss of relationships or loss of touch, Maybe it's you're weighed down by sin and doubts. Maybe you're thinking you are unlovable to God or anybody else. God wants you to know that He loves you, that you are precious. And you are worthy to him. He has known you intimately since before you were born. Psalm 139, one of my favorite chapters in all of scripture. Verse 16 says this, Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And earlier in that chapter, he says, You were knit together in your mother's womb by God. He's known you since conception. He provided Jesus to bring you salvation He not only made you, but he rescued you. He restored you to spiritual and physical life for eternity. John 3.16, which is a familiar verse to many of us, says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. His birth, his suffering, his death and resurrection took care of our sin problem. It proves how worthy we are to Jesus and the length he would go to show us how much he loves us. But there's more. He not only provides us with the path of salvation and eternity, but he also provides us with the Holy Spirit to energize our spiritual life today and remind us of how much we're worth. The last phrase of the song, a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. We're finally to that lyric that kind of started this whole journey with Joyce and I in that conversation. The gospel gives us confidence and assurance and hope. Now, honestly, this has been a long and dreary season for me this last almost year where I've lacked my usual energy. I'm not a steady person. I'm not up and down emotionally. That's just not who I am. So this is kind of unusual for me. But I've come to understand this lack of energy is because I've been being weary of being sad. Sad that I can't see my kids and grandkids as often as I'd like. Sad that we can't meet in person as a youth group or as a church, but knowing that that's the right decision for this time in our life. Sad that I can't give a a handshake or a hug or have to think about the distance I am away from people. Sad that life is not normal that's being interrupted. I'm just weary of being sad. But in spite of being weary of being sad, I still have this hope in Christ. Hope that's based on the confidence in God's word. My joy comes from knowing that this is temporary. My eternity is guaranteed because of that birth and death and resurrection of Jesus. My future is secure. If you don't know that hope, you can have it today. Ask somebody that invites you to watch this, this sermon or this, our church service online. Ask them where you can have that salvation, where you can have that hope To Ask them to explain the gospel to you. Call into the church office. Any of us as pastors or actually any of our staff would love to talk to you about how you can be, become a believer in Jesus Christ and have that eternity that we also have a secure hope in. But I also rejoice because there's, I also know the end of the story. This is just temporary. We know the end of the story. There's also a second advent coming, a second arrival of Jesus to the earth. And before he comes back a second time, shortly before that, there's going to be the rapture of the church where we as a church, the believers are caught up to be with him in heaven. And then he's going to come a second time physically back to the earth where Satan, temptation, sin are defeated and eliminated when God establishes a new heaven and a new earth. Our hope is in Christ. So let's fix our eyes on him. Now here's the rest of the story of a holy night. France entered a period of political unrest. The common people were tired of war and they were tired of the elite ruling class. And the church was considered to be part of that elite ruling class. So a lot of the common people turned against the church. Placide Capot was one of those and that turned against the church and pursued a socialist agenda in France. The church found out that Placide walked away from the church and was promoting, promoting socialism. They also found out that the person that wrote the music for O Holy Night was a Jew by birth. And so the church's response was to ban O Holy Night from the church, being sung in the church. And that ban held for 25 years. Now, people still sung that in their home around Christmas Eve because they loved that song, but they could not sing it in the church. It became popular again after an American songwriter named John Sullivan Dwight translated it into English during the Civil War. Now, John was an abolitionist, and he connected with the third verse of the song, which says, truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love. His gospel is peace. Chains shall he break for the slave Is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. Words that are timely for our nation today. So the words and music of a socialist agnostic, a Jew, and an abolitionist live on today, not because of the ideology of their writers, but because they're grounded in the truths of Scripture. That's the rest of the story. But there's more. In 1906, it happened on Christmas Eve. Communication between ships and ship to shore were through wireless telegraph. Now, my dad was a telegraph operator for, for most of his life. He learned the, tre- tel- the Morse code and telegraph when he was in the Navy, and he did that in the railroad for, as a telegrapher for many, many years. So I grew up with dots and dashes in Morse code. In 1906, Reginald Fessenden was a 33-year-old professor who formerly worked for Thomas Edison, and he invented a new type of generator that he believed would be able to translate, transmit the human voice over wireless telegraph. So he contacted some ships off of the shore of New England uh, to let them know that he was going to experiment on Christmas Eve. Much to the shock of those ships and many others that he hadn't contacted, and actually some other nations, the radios picked up the human voice that Christmas Eve with no dots and no dashes. Reginald began reading the Christmas story from Luke chapter 2. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. He continued to read the Christmas story from Luke. When he was done, he picked up his violin and he began playing, O Holy Night, even singing during one of the verses. God's word and the truth of the song was heard around the world that day. We have the opportunity to bring hope to, to a weary world, to people weighed down by sin and error, to people that don't know that God calls them worthy. So my challenge to you and to me in 2021 is this. Let's be the light that shines in the darkness to bring hope to a weary world. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to be born of a baby, but also to sacrifice his life and to die and be rose to rise again so that we know that sin has been defeated and death has been defeated and we can have forgiveness for our sin. God, let us be a light, not a distraction from that message as we go into 2021. Thank you for the hope we have in you. In Jesus' name, amen.